Hello, and welcome to the Loft Gathering Podcast. We are excited to welcome you to our authority series. We will be talking about the contents of our mind, mouth, attitude, and life actions, and how these are the staples to further understand our authority in God's kingdom. If you're ready to have your thinking challenged and your faith turned up, here's Lisa. Today's topic, as we're gearing up for a few weeks of studying the authority of the believer, last week we talked about what? The words of our mouth, how they matter, and sometimes we forget that our words are powerful one way or another, and we have to remember that our words matter when we speak them to other people, and it can be like a fence post, like driving a nail into the post. Once word is spoken, it's there. Why do, we, why do we talk about that, getting ready to talk about spiritual authority? Because our words matter. The same words that build up can, if they're used the wrong way, can tear down. We have to learn how to speak the word of God out loud out of our mouths in spiritual authority to overcome the evil one. And that's what we're working toward, and that's what we're going to do. This week, by the same token, to prepare us for spiritual authority, we're going to talk about, does anyone believe in the Bible anymore? And I want to have this conversation. So I want to have this conversation about the authority of the word of God in our lives. And I want us to be able to receive it and take it in and be able to let God come in and transform us through it. So the reason I'm even talking about this is because, you know, the world is full of Christians and full of just life-giving things that are, that are powerful by the kingdom of God, but sometimes as Christians, we fall a tiny bit short, which of course we do. We all sin and fall short of God's glory, right? We all sin and fall short of God's glory. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a passion for the word of God that we actually live out of it, not in perfection. There's only one perfect, that's Jesus, but the Bible still tells us to be perfect. See what I'm saying? How can we embrace what the Bible is saying and have it matter to us and it not be something where we just like yawn and move on? Or it's not just something where we make a check mark. Well, I read my, read my devotion for the day, and now I'm moving on. That's not it. we got to live and move and have our being in it because it defines us. The world will define us harshly. God will define us divinely. And he'll speak to us about purpose and intention if we'll, if we'll let it come to us. So what is your experience with the word of God? What is your connection to it? What is your intelligent deciphering of it. What do you know about it? What do you know about the word of God? And when we teach this, and we've taught this message a lot of times about the authenticity, the accreditation, the value of the word of God as a historic book, and we'll, we'll pull up some of those facts again. I even looked, looked up things that I've looked up in the past about science, and I'm going to share that kind of stuff with us too. But what is your own experience? Because when it gets to the end of this message today, and we go out of here, and we go do, do our rest of our week, before we come back again, will the word go with us? Will it be in us? Will it be something that we surrender our lives to? Right? Okay. So the Bible is basically the first book. And it's not just a book. It's a collection of books. It's basically a library. All in and of itself. It already exists as a library, the first book, a collection of amazing books. 
we've talked about it a, a lot. Like I said, it's, it's written by politicians. It's written by statesmen. It's written by kings. It's written by shepherds and fishermen. And, you know, Moses wrote the book from the wilderness in Africa. Did you know that? Jeremiah and Paul wrote from prison in Europe. John wrote from the Isle of Patmos, also in Europe. But most of all, it was written in Asia, in a little place you might have heard of called Jerusalem in Israel. Most of the word comes from there. It has three translations, three, three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And it's very diverse, even from the origins of where it comes from and the writers themselves who penned it, and it blends together perfectly. I mean, there are um, 40 lines of the entire Bible that are the questionable things that people say contradict. There are 40 lines of text out of all the millions of lines, all the thousands, tens of thousands of lines. There are 40 that come into question by the world, by atheists, by people who are naysayers, people that don't believe in the word. And not one of them have to do with doctrine or what we believe about our God. Every one of them have to do with situations and interpretation. That's pretty powerful. It makes the Bible 99.9% true and accredited. I love it. There's three things we're going to look at today of how to validate something, whether it's whatever it is in science and archaeology, any kind of documentation, art. They all go through processes that cause us to then validate it and say, yep, that's authentic. That'll pass. That holds water. That's historically sound. And there's three things. Here's what they are. Were the authors who wrote it, the artists who created it, whoever brought forth the document or the, the element that we're talking about. Are they the eyewitness? Are they the artist themselves? Are they the author themselves? Did they eyewitness it? Secondly, what do outside sources say? People who are looking at it, people who are critiquing it alongside, people who have just as much prowess and theological doctrine and degrees and letters behind their name. What did they say about what it was? And then thirdly, what is the historical content and context of other pieces and other pieces of art, other documents, we're talking about the Bible, but I'm just saying in all of historical exploration, these are things that are look, looked at. So I think that's paramount to understand that the people that wrote the Bible, especially the New Testament, are eyewitnesses, or they got it from a firsthand witness, like Luke. So I have a couple of scriptures I want to read about the authors witnessing it firsthand, and it's 2 Peter 1.16. You guys can stand up. We can go up, down today, or we can just read a couple, a couple just for your honor of the word and being quiet while we read it. You lean in, I'll read. 2 Peter 1.16. And I will make every effort, Peter speaking, to ensure that after my departure, after I die, that you'll be able to recall these things at all times. For we did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then John in 1 John 1, 3, he says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And lastly, Luke. Many have undertaken to compose an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by the initial eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good 
also to me to write an orderly account for you. You can have a seat. Eyewitness accounts of what they're talking about. Okay? I like that. I guess I could pause right here and say some of the Old Testament did not have an exact eyewitness account because you talk about Moses. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and those are the books of the law, right, the Torah. Well, he didn't eyewitness Adam and Eve in the garden. He would have written that generations later. But we believe as Christians that by the inspiration and divine connection with God that God revealed to him the beginning, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And we accept it readily. And this is where the world today, when I say, does the Bible, does anyone believe it anymore? The world outside of Christianity thinks that these are pretend stories, that they're fables, that they're just made up, you know. Do you know why? It's very convenient to believe, excuse me, it's very convenient to believe that they're made up stories. That gives one absolutely no accountability for one's life or actions. You can do whatever you want and say whatever you want because this stuff is pretend anyway. That's the kind of call that'll come back. Well, well, Moses wasn't there. He didn't witness it. How can I then trust in the Old Testament and what's there myself? How can I trust it as a, as a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path? You know how? Because I believe that Jesus is the Lord of all lords. I believe he's the king that he said he was. I believe he's the Messiah. Do you believe that? Because if, if we believe that, then we have no option but to believe the Bible because he is the one who referred to it constantly when he was teaching. If Jesus validates the patriarchs, Moses, Abraham, Elijah, we will too. We can trust them because we trust him. Okay? You tracking with me so far? Okay, what do people outside of the Bible say about it? This is kind of some of my favorite parts of the message today. Because there's a new movement called New Atheist. I don't know if you've heard of it. The New Atheist. You can, please don't look it up. Well, you can, but here, here's the idea. It's pastors, you know, that are speaking out that they, they've been enlightened beyond what the Bible is and what it says. And that maybe it's just there for, you know, maybe it's just there for entertainment purposes or a moral compass. But certainly it's not supposed to be the guidepost for my life. And they believe that there's a, a creation, but a big, huge separation between God and people. These are, these are pastors that once were enlightened. The Bible calls this a great falling away. And, and if, it, if the days were not shortened, maybe even the elect would fall away. Maybe even, maybe even people that believed in God a long time would lose their way and lose their faith. But beloved, I'm telling you all these things so that you'll know that when it comes, that you'll be aware. And you won't fall away. And you will come in closer, Right? So what do people outside the Bible have to say about it? So historians validate details in the Bible as accurate and affirmed. The sites that I'm talking about are the United States Department of Education, who always are looking to prove curriculum and validate books for, for what they are. That's where you get like the Iliad and, and the Odyssey and these kinds of books that come alongside and talk about. Even the Koran talks about Noah and the Ark, you know, I mean, books that get validated for historical reference. The United States Department of Education, the American Accrediting Association, the Council for Higher Education Accreditation. Those are three that I actually vetted. But there's three or four hundred of them that look at this stuff and say, yep, that's right. That was the right king at the right time. Yep, that was the right city. 
Yeah, when we look at a map where Sodom and Gomorrah used to exist, you know what it is there? A salt mine. That's, that's what's there right now on the ground. The Bible was there a long time before any archaeologist set foot on it and deemed it to be salty. If you're not familiar with that story, you can look in the Old Testament about a guy named Lot. He had a wife. She's still there in the salt mine, okay? Science and archaeology. There's so many archaeological digs that happen and, and things that go on. You know, let's start with the um, chariot wheels. So different men at different times. This guy's name is Ron Wyatt. If you look on the Internet, the Internet will call him a kook. We'll, we'll say that his stuff isn't true, that he made this up. But he has actual footage of himself on a boat pulling this stuff out of the ocean. Do you know where he got it from? Well, not the ocean. It's the Dead Sea. Looking at where potentially Moses might have crossed through a little, two, little tiny path through mountains to, an, to a beach out into the ocean, takes a boat out there, does the search for a long time, a couple years, and then they find these, these things. These are, oh, it's so blurry. Is there a better one? Let's see. Okay, that right there, if you, you can see all the stuff that's grown over it. Well, it's been there a long time, guys. But they take it out and they clean it up and they get some kind of an image. It's a wheel and then an axle and then a wheel. See, shields that are found. Not one. Thousands and thousands of shields found at the bottom of the Dead Sea. What does that mean? That means that Moses actually went through the Dead Sea. Like, that's a legit story that actually happened. Mind blown. I think we say this stuff, if we're the first time Christian giving ourselves to the word and try, trying to trust it and believe on it and rely on it, you know, that's an awesome moment for you to begin to trust your life into the word. If you're a veteran in the word, you've been looking at it a long time. Sometimes we've read the word so much and for so long and so many times, we start to make it say what we think and what we want, and we morph it into something that we believe, and it's not even what God meant anymore. It's time to look at the word again with some fresh eyes. This stuff actually happened. If this stuff actually happened, people that don't believe in God have a big, huge awakening. What is our part? What's your job? We're ministers of reconciliation, if you never heard that before. Our job is to bring the light and life of these things that we know. And this proof, this is proof. This is science giving a nod to what God already said. Okay? Let's look at the Noah's Ark thing. I love this one. We've talked about this before. And there's a picture that has, like, the years ago. And then it has the new, the new study. Someone else has taken on the work now, the archaeological dig. It's by a guy named Andrew Jones. This guy has been a, a, a teacher, a professor. He's like Indiana Jones in my mind. He doesn't look like him at all, but no, go back to that other one real quick. So over here on the left, this is when we first started talking about this stuff. Oh, by the way, guess where it is? It's exactly where the Bible said it was going to be, where it landed in Turkey on Mount Ararat. And people go, well, of course that's where it is. They put it there. They, they built the structure. They made it there. No, they didn't. This has fossils. This is, come on, follow your own science. This thing is there. So on the left is when they first found it. Is there one that's really far out from, like it's real high up? Yep, see? That's when they first found it from the air. Isn't that amazing? You know, somebody takes the time to fly and see if these things are true. Fly an aerial view and finds this, and they're like, what is that? So they go and mark it off, and they just little by little start to uncover it. Now go to that one that has the three again. Okay, so we started over there 
with that's how it was found from that aerial view. Now, look where they are now. This is like six or eight years since we looked at it. This is, I didn't see this on the internet six or eight years ago. I just only had that first picture to show us. Someone took it on, and they're finding there are levels in this thing, and there are rooms. It means it actually exists. Look how primitive it looks. That's, that is freaking cool. I mean, that is amazing to, to uphold, and I love it. There's a, a third one. The pathways of the sea. This is, these are just my favorite things to talk about. They're easy to talk about. They're science. In the bottom of the ocean, there are pathways in the sea. And we always make a little bit of, you know, light about, have you ever seen Finding Nemo? You know, and how everybody gets on top of the big stingray, all the little students of the sea, and the stingray is the teacher and whatever. And they have to stop for all the little, you know, minnows to cross. And, oh, here comes a whale. Run away. You know, and they have all this kind of stuff. Or there's little pathways. Well, there is that, but what it really is, see these grooves? Like that's, that's like the Finding Nemo kind of pathways on the bottom of the ocean floor. And they, and they do live in little communities. But this right here, this is an example of what I want to talk about. I have to, I have to pull some of this from, uh, it's from the Discovery Channel. It's not a Christian validating the Bible. It is a scientist looking at pathways in the sea, which the Bible talked about in Psalm 8.8 way before this documentary was ever made. And here's a little excerpt from it. It says, in discussing some of Earth's creatures, of which man is in charge, the writer mentions in Psalm, whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. It's just a little phrase that's in the Bible. Well, the expression is interesting because the phrase contains a precise fact about the seas that David, whose experience would have been limited to a tiny country on the Mediterranean coast, could never have known from firsthand information what he was saying inspired by God. And it was not until the mid-19th century the connection was made regarding currents, literally paths. So in the sea and the statement from Psalms a thousand years before Christ, in 1860, a pioneer oceanographer, Matthew Fontaine Maury, called attention to the fact that the ocean was a circulating system. His book on physical oceanography is still highly regarded as a source of information on this science. Consider, for example, the Gulf Stream, okay? Didn't you love science class in school? I didn't, but I do now, and I have a big appreciation for this kind of stuff because it, it validates what I believe in my heart and soul about the kingdom of God and about Jesus himself. The Gulf Stream flows from the east coast of North America toward Europe. It's about 50 miles wide, 3,000 feet deep. Its rate of flow measured in volume per second is about 1,000 times greater than the Mississippi River. Many ocean vessels ride this current in order to save valuable shipping time. Now, if you're smart and you want to remember this for the rest of your days, and you ever want to have a conversation with an atheist, I know you're afraid to, but you won't be for very long because your chains are coming off, and your spirit is rising on the inside of you, and you're beginning to realize who you are and what's going on in the, in the world because our whole message here is wake up and see that the Lord is good. And do your part to be his representation on the earth today. So get in your Bible at Psalm 8, 8. Underline the expression, paths of the sea. And right next to it in the margin, confirmed by Matthew Mari in 1860, that God's word is sustainable. I mean, I like this stuff. I don't, I don't know how you guys feel about it. Why am I talking about the validity of the word? Because if you don't believe in it, there's no reason for you to come to the spiritual authority series. If you can't camp out and believe in the things that God is saying, there's no reason for you to sit here and learn about spiritual authority. That's like putting a razor blade in the hands of a two-year-old. 
We just wouldn't do that. But we do it intentionally sometimes. This is a call for you to come forward and invest your time in the word of God and let the word of God take a hold in you and take seed in you. Thirdly, the manuscript evidence test. I like this. All of the ancient documents are written by hand. Did you know that? All of, the, all of the beginning of the word is written by hand, and there's only so many copies. I forgot to write down how many it was, but it's not that many. You know, it was like 30. And that might not seem like a lot, but let me talk to you about it, how they came to be. So the, the Jewish people were fanatical about specifics and how it had to be written and how it had to be done. So the, the job of a scribe, I mean, you know, we talk about like ghostwriters today or editors or people that rewrite books and get on there and type and whatever they do. But in this day, this is a pen and a little quill and a scroll and by hand writing down every single word of this stuff bit by bit. And every single time they wrote the name God, Yahweh, Jehovah, they had to go ceremonially bathe. So this took a long, long time. And then the copies would be poured over and compared to the original one for accuracy and to, to line upon line be exactly the same And if it, before it was ever distributed. And if it wasn't exactly the same, exactly, do you know what they did? They didn't just draw a line through it and write over the top. They burned it. It has to be holy. Can you imagine if you're a scribe? Better to measure twice and cut once. And they just take their time painstakingly to write it down. It's fantastic. It's amazing. In 70 AD, the Roman government took over. Israel took over Jerusalem, seized the city, burned everything that would have been Jewish, tried to destroy everything about their customs. But everything I just explained to you, which is holy and powerful and sacred, somebody took and hid and hid far away until some kind of, I don't know, Tibetan or some kind of shepherd found in a cave some scrolls, old, old, old scrolls. scrolls. And when they're opened and they're compared, so 1,800 years ago, hidden in the cave, found by a shepherd, reported, opened up, and matches 100% the things that we look at as the word of God today. We call them the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you guys are just being still. I'm just going to believe that your whole body is full of goosebumps and that your whole entity and being is like, oh my God, this stuff is real. This stuff is real that we're talking about. The power of God is not deniable. The power of God is good. It's fascinating. The last thing I wanted to talk about was a way to understand the divinity. Now, that's the historical value in nature. How do we understand the divinity of the Bible? What makes it holy? This is it. It prophesies way over there what was going to happen up there. And I just made a short list about Jesus but in the Old Testament, which Jesus referred to, so I can trust that, Jesus trusts the patriarchal system, I do, okay? So because Jesus is the king and he's the Lord and he's the Messiah, and I believe that, so I trust the things that he says. So 
300 times in the Old Testament, there's a declaration of a Messiah that's coming. And there's a whole list of things that he will do. He will this, he will that, he will be this, he will go this way. He'll be riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. He'll be spit upon. He'll be beaten. He'll be crucified next to criminals. He'll be served vinegar upon that cross. His clothes will be gambled for right in front of him. A spear will pierce his side, and he's going to rise again. These kinds of things, like the likelihood of Jesus Christ being able to do even one of these things, get this. Just say that I had one million pennies, and I wish I did. But just say that I did, and I put one red dot on one penny, and I put a million pennies out there on the parking lot and one red dot on one penny, and I blindfold you, and I put you on the parking lot, and I say, can you walk around and try to sense where that one is? That's, that's the likelihood that Jesus could have them bring vinegar to the cross where he is and put it to his lips. How can that happen? There's something divine about this thing. There's something holy. About, there's something spiritual. It's otherly. It's telling us about what will happen in the future. And we can trust it because it's already been accurate before. I hope this stirs you up. All the things I just said, all the things I just told us, do we still believe in it, though? What do our lives look like next to it? What I'm proposing is there's a whole lot of repentance ahead of us. And not repentance where we're just low and crying and wallowing for the rest of eternity. No. Repentance is the cure that breaks off all the things that hold us down, that we might have eyes that are enlightened and ears that begin to understand what we're looking at and what we're reading and what we're seeing, that we can live in it because we are very powerful. We are very powerful with the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. Mm-mm. Okay, here's some other points of contention. When you look up this new atheist movement thing, they have some questions that they ask. And I'm going to ask you, because in these days, we're going to have to be able to understand how to give an account for what we believe. So the biggest argument, well, there's three big ones, but this is the first one I'm going to talk about. They question the deity, the authenticity, the authority of God based on a Holocaust, which then you have a whole other group of ignorant people and people that don't have a soul that say that never happened. So then you have, people just get all over the world with the internet constantly feeding their thoughts for what they believe and what they think. Okay? So the Holocaust, how did the Holocaust happen if, if God is God and he protected all the people of Israel and brought them through the sea on dry ground, you know, that pillar of cloud that we talk about in the day and a fire at night to keep them warm. If God could do all that, why did he let 8 million people die in the name of Jew, his chosen people? I'm not here to answer all the questions, okay? I have thoughts about that, and we might talk about it again. But why would God let that happen? That's an atheistic question. Someone who really needs to believe that there isn't a God. Okay? The next one is, if God is real and he's in authority, this is their biggest point of contention, why do Christians not live after what God says? Now, that is a huge 
it could be convicting. To me, here's what it is. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. No one can live perfect. We already made that declaration once in this very service. But it's a scrutiny that comes on those of us who believe because we are held to a different standard than every other person in the world. Because we're bought with a price, we trust Jesus to be our author and our finisher, and we, can, we call ourselves sons and daughters of the king. But you know what? We're vessels of clay. Vessels of clay. Full of the spirit of God. Vessels of clay. But God's created us nonetheless to be here, to, to carry his spirit all around the earth, all around the world. It's who we are. It's who we're made for. But when an atheist looks at the life of a Christian, they look at our life and say, you don't follow God. I can't follow God either. Okay. Now, I'm, again, I'm not here to answer that question. But yeah, you know, just pay attention to me. Just pay attention to me. God's bringing a word here. It doesn't matter. That's, God loves everybody. God's bringing healing right into this room. He's bringing healing into this room. He's trying to make a connection of life. So let's just go ahead and lean into what he's trying to say, okay? So the third, the third thing, if I could even think of it after all that, is all the different things that the Bible speaks about, okay? Here's one. If you were born in another country, you would be a Muslim too. If you were born in a Muslim country, you'd be Muslim. It wouldn't be merciful of God to be able to say you're going to go to hell then if you never know Jesus. How do you defend that? I will defend this one. If you were born, the person making the point, if you were born in another Muslim country, you would also be Muslim and we wouldn't be having this argument. All the points get moot when you start talking like that, right? There's this whole theory of relativity and how it matters and, and people want to camp out in that kind of thing. And what I'm challenging us to do is to take in and absorb the truth about the word and what, what it means to us and what it is and what it's saying of itself and be able to have the confrontations and the conversations that will cause our circle to level up and will cause the people in our sphere of influence to come to know Jesus and maybe get a glimpse. A couple other points of contention. Male dominance is in the Bible. Slavery is in the Bible. Polygamy. Murder. And yeah, all those things are in there. They're also in some of the best crime books that you can read, too. They're not condoned in the Bible any more than they are in our society today. Now, some of the things, like you look at, you know, polygamy. Anybody who lived in a polygamy situation was miserable. Can you imagine can you imagine two husbands, ladies? I know men like to make that joke about two wives, but I already know there's many, 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 many wives right here represented in one. I can have, I can have a different personality and take on life every day. I'm wired that way. I'm a, I'm a plethora of joy, you know? You're welcome. But can you imagine anywhere in the Bible that polygamy is explored? It is horrible. It is a bad situation. We can just talk about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. It's bad. It's not condoned. You know, there are arguments to all of these things, and we have to be able to give an account. Just a little quick, you know, it's like apologetics 101, just a little bit, just enough for you to be able to talk about it and have a little bit of wisdom to back up what you're saying. You know, I heard somebody say, if you're all, if you're all teaching and you're all the law, you're so boring, you're dried up, you know, and you also get puffed up in what you know. But if you're all spirit, if you're just all the spirit and I just feel everything and I'm touchy-feely, you're just like cotton candy. You puff up, you blow up, 
nobody can relate to that. You have to have the word and the spirit together so you can grow up. That's what we're doing. That's what we're looking for this morning. The thing about male dominance, if you think that's only in the Bible and you don't follow the Bible because of male dominance, you should just leave the world right now. The world right now is male dominant. Why? You know, I mean, I think that a woman should make the same wage as a man if she's doing the same job, okay? But in the beginning, if we trust the patriarchs that wrote it, because we trust Jesus who validated the patriarchs, then we're looking at, in the beginning, God made man in his image, and then he made a woman from the image of a man. Not so that men could lord that over us, so that we could relish in the covering that that is. That is profound, if we can relish in a covering of a man, if a man can look at the authority on a woman's life or see the gift of God in a woman's life and celebrate that and promote that, that's your covering. It's awesome. If we don't shun it and despise it and try to be the man ourselves. One thing I read or heard this, this week is that when a society is getting ready to fall, like in the Roman Empire, the Greek empire. One of the signs is that gender confusion begins to happen. And we're way past that, guys. Now, when I say that, does that make you afraid? It shouldn't make you afraid because God has already warned us about these things. And if you are afraid, we do a lot of things in the face of fear anyway. That's called courage. And we will do it. But we know the signs of the times and we know what's ahead. Knowing this word is only going to increase our spiritual authority and our ability to wield a sword well. So I think the woman, lastly, on that male-dominant thing, the woman gave man that authority when she was deceived and ate that apple. Men send intentionally. We're all jacked up. We all need the favor, the redemption, the forgiveness of Jesus. Do we still believe the Bible? The last thing I want to talk about is the reason... Above every other reason, all that history is great. I love it. All those archaeological digs, powerful, very cool. I love all that kind of stuff. I don't think it's fluffy. If you look on the internet, they're going to tell you it's not real, that it's not right. So you have to find websites and be able to look. And I, I have them. I cited you three. But look, look them up if you want to binge on something, you know, and try to find something good out there to look at. But the main thing about the Bible, the reason I can trust it, and the reason that I'm talking about it today is what it has done in me personally. See, because once the Bible is applied to your life and it does something in you personally, you know, like it speaks to you that says, even though your father and mother forsake you, I will never forsake you. I will adopt you as my own. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, peculiar people called out of darkness into light. When you start letting that wash over you and it starts to make a mark on you and who you are, nothing can devalue or invalidate your story because you lived it and you applied it to your life. That's the kind of stuff that I'm looking for. I love it when somebody sends me a scripture. Man, I read this, and this really changed my life. God really spoke to me about this. God, God gave me a scripture about how I'm the apple of his eye this morning. God speaks about, about the goodness of God in the land of the living and how I'm right here, born for such a time as this. And you start to believe that, your life is going to look a lot different, a lot more glowing, a lot more powerful, a lot more intentional. 
You guys ever heard of a Gallup poll? Whole all kinds of statistics. As of May, one in four Americans now believe that the Bible is the actual word of God to be taken literally. One in four. Similarly, 26% view it as a book of fables, legends, and history, moral precepts recorded by man. It's the first time in a decade that biblical literalism has not surpassed biblical skepticism. Meanwhile, about half of Americans, 46%, proportionately believe that the Bible is the word of God, but it shouldn't be taken exactly literally. Now, I always think I'm going to side with the Christian majority and believe what they believe. But I'm going to tell you what, you don't believe literally what the Bible says either. <laughs> I'm going to tell you how I know that. I'm going to give you a couple of quick, I mean, how, you think you're literal. Don't raise your hand because you'll, you'll feel dumb after I say this. Okay, so here's the thing. We think we literally believe the word of God and what it says, and that's how we live. Because we always think more highly of ourselves than we're supposed to. Look, I know it's taken a long time. These are one-off messages. i got to say everything today. You'll be all right. Lunch will be there in 10 minutes instead of right now. So here's a couple of examples. In 2 Corinthians, it says, Brothers, rejoice. Aim for perfect harmony. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send you greetings. Now, nobody kissed me when I came in here today, except for maybe Scott. And we're not going to start kissing in here either, because then you will learn my karate moves. You know what? It's the, it's the culture. I believe the Bible is idealist, idealistic, more than literal. One more. Matthew 5.30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You ever look at porn? You still have eyes? If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Did you ever steal? Did you ever take more than it was deserved? Did you ever flip anybody off? Did you ever make a gesture? Did you still have hands? That's what I'm saying. It's idealistic. It's, it's like teaching you the severity of the separation that sin makes from us and God. But we believe it idealistically. And so we follow it the best that we can. That's why the atheist people in the world, which I'm going to say are brothers and sisters, that also made in the image of God, waiting to be enlightened by our Jesus. You know, that's why they still look over and say, oh, you still, you do, you do what I do, and you sin, and you're this, and you're that. Well, yeah. We are. <laughs> the difference between me and you is that I am covered in the blood of Jesus. And when God looks at me, I'm hidden in Christ. So when he looks at me, he sees Jesus. But when he looks at you, he sees the accusation. It's very different. Very different thought. You guys get what I'm saying? So imagine a world without the Bible. You don't even have to. Just look around. 1962 is when the Supreme Court said that there wouldn't, we wouldn't be allowed to have prayer in schools anymore. Took the Ten Commandments off the walls. And you know what happened since then? Violent crime, abortion, rape. It's on the rise at 500% since 1962. More crimes, more violent crimes. You know, we look at it like 
you know, we, we look at that like shaking our head and wonder, where are you, God? What are you going to do? And I guess what I want, the last thing I want to say to us today, next week we're going to talk about our, our thought lives, okay, in preparation for carrying the sword of the Spirit. And then we're going to have David here, and then we're going to jump into this stuff. But, you know, the last thing I want to say to us before we get out of here today is just, will you let the Spirit of God open up your eyes and speak to you about the power and integrity of his word in your life as you're moving forward? And will you be bold enough to carry it into a generation where people are sorely, desperately looking and longing for salvation? You could stand up. Thank you for your attention. I know I went a little bit over today. I probably will next week too. But then I'll get in a series and I'll get you out of here. I love you guys so much. I am still amazed you come in here every week and listen to anything I would have to say. It's a, it's a joy and a delight to my soul. You know why? Because I know who I was before the word began to define me. Before the word structured in my life, kingdom authority, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God. Jesus' name. God, let this corner be a light. Let it be a place of deliverance and freedom in Jesus' name. Let it be a place where we walk around without fear because we are caught up in you, God. God, let it be a place of love. What if our church was known for loving people? Mm, I speak life to your people. I speak life to your people in Jesus' name. I love you guys. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to like and follow for the next installment of The Loft Podcast. If you want to be a partner with The Loft, you can give on Givelify.com. If you need more information, check us out on Facebook or at theloftgathering.com. And of course, join us 1030 Sunday mornings. Hope you have a great week. Till next time.